Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Uh, concerning these uh, fall festivals or fall feasts that are commanded in the scripture, in the Old Testament, and we have come up to the last of them, the seventh of the seven feasts. If you remember, well, if you are here a couple of weeks ago, then you got a little chart, a little table printed out in your, in your notes in the, with, the, with the bulletin that lists all the feasts and their different fulfillments. And I'm not going to go over all of that again, but I just want to remind you that there are seven feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. And by the way, you can go ahead and find the book of Leviticus in chapter 23, because I'm going to read a few verses out of there to begin with. And the first of those feasts at the beginning of the year is Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, all three of those being fulfilled with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The Feast of Trumpets, or really, literally, the Feast of the Blowing of the Trumpets, and uh, then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that we talked about last week. And finally, we've come to the seventh feast in the cycle of the year, the last feast of the year, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. It depends on what version of the English Bible you've got. You know, in my, the one I read from usually here, New American Standard, it's called the Feast of Booths. But I don't really like to say the word booths because it's hard to say T-H and S at the end of it. For me, anyway, and uh, because it just, I don't know, it sounds like a telephone booth to me. So I like the word Feast of Tabernacles, which is, is King James, uh, but you need to have an understanding that when we say tabernacle, uh, you know, tabernacle has become a word that just means a, a, a place of religious worship or something, and so we think of, you know, a building, and that's not what it is. The word tabernacle in the Hebrew, sukkah. Uh, and thus, the, the festival is called Sukkot because it means of plural tabernacles. Uh, Sukkah is a tent, and simply a tent that was built, and uh, not the kind of tent uh, necessarily like we have today, which would have been more of a not permanent, it was movable, but you know, pretty well built thing like the tabernacle was built before the temple in the Old Testament. But the kind of tent that you just put together when you go out and you gather sticks and you build a little stick shack, little house out in the wilderness and you cover it over with some cloths and decorate it however you want to decorate. Like let's say you went camping, but you didn't really go camping. You just went off-roading and you got way out there and your car broke down and you were stuck out there. Of course, here you'd never find a tree because it's going to be out in the desert somewhere. But imagine <laughs> it happened somewhere where there were trees and you wanted shelter for the night and you had some instruments, some tools with you. You would cut some branches and you would make what they called a sukkah which was a, that's what we're referring to when we're talking about tabernacle. So these seven feasts that are in the year, they're in Leviticus, way back in the book of the law, and they were given to Moses, but much like the constellations and the stars that are in the sky that were there before we were ever even created, and someday maybe I'll do a sermon on, on those also, because it's actually quite interesting they were, they were placed in the sky as a picture 
of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach us the truth of the gospel and understand the truth of the gospel. And they were there before we were ever even created. And in much the same way, these seven feasts, although they were not understood and they were not even kept uh, all the time in Israel, they were designed to be a yearly cycle, an illustration, uh, an illustrated book so that the people could know the coming of the Messiah and they could know what to expect and they would be ready for him and prepared for him. And so they are still there as a picture of the first coming and of the second coming of Jesus. So the Feast of Tabernacles actually this year begins this very day. Today, on this Sunday, begins the Feast of Tabernacles at sunset, and they are to keep the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, so it continues until next Sunday at sunset, and then after that, there's a great day of the feast, an eighth day that comes after that, and we're going to be talking about that later. So actually, the message that I have on my heart, I divided it up into two uh, uh, messages. So we're going to have the first one this Sunday and the second one will be next Sunday. Next Sunday we'll be especially looking at the last great day of the feast um, in as much as uh, some very significant things uh, happened on that day including the entire chapter of John uh, chapter 7 and we'll get, we'll get to that next week. So open with me to Leviticus chapter, chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. How many of you woke up in the middle of the night last night about 3 o'clock like I did? And did, did that happen because the moon was so bright that you thought, oh, it's already time to get up? And you went in to make coffee and then looked at the clock and it said it was 3 o'clock and you thought, what? And you went back to bed and tried to sleep some more? Well, that happened to me because the moon was really bright last night and as it was you know, going you know, into the west, it came in the, the bedroom window and I thought for sure that the sun was coming up in my state of sleepiness. Uh, but the Feast of Tabernacles begins on a full moon, which is today is, is the full moon. And um, so if the Feast of, of the Blowing of the Trumpets came on a day when nobody could know the day or the hour, if you remember that, and we referred to the second coming of Jesus, the Feast of the Tabernacles comes at the full light of the full moon. And we're blessed to live in a rural community uh, in Nevada where we can actually see stars and the moon because I've never lived any place like this before. I grew up in the city. I've always lived in cities and you can see the moon, you can see the stars, but you know it's completely different than it is here. So since living here, whenever there's a full moon, I imagine things like the, um, at, at the time of the Passover, uh, in, with Jesus' crucifixion, with his trial, what kind of bright full moon they had on those, those nights and those events that were happening. And so during this entire camping experience that they would have with the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the kind of full moon that there would be, that there is. And uh, so we are at the Feast of Tabernacles today. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to talk about what the Feast of Tabernacles is a little bit, but always relating it prophetically to our lives uh, today. Leviticus chapter 23, and remember the title of the message, all these messages, is a season of hope, because if there's anything we need in our world today, it's hope, It's to be able to see what's coming 
in, in the future. And I know that you agree with that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. We come to your word with respect. We come to your word, Lord, with a real fear of you, a, a deep, loving respect for you, God. I thank you for the wisdom and the knowledge that you give to us. And I pray that you would open our hearts, Holy Spirit, as we yield them over to you and speak your word to us and give us an ear to hear what it is you're saying to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Leviticus chapter 23, I'm going to read a few of these verses, beginning with verse 33. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month, is the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. Uh, You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. So you see there's seven days of the feast and then an eighth day. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord, a solemn assembly. It is, uh, it is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, to present offerings by fire to the Lord, etc. Then look with me at verse 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, When you have gathered in the crops of the land, pay careful attention to that. When you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees. And then he tells them what kind, palm palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And you shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So there's an accent on the, uh, uh, that this statute is perpetual. And it's true with the others, but there's really an accent on this that this has given us a picture of eternity to come, that this rejoicing and this feast will continue for all eternity. You shall live in booths or in tabernacles, in tents, for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in tabernacles when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times, all seven of them that are in this chapter of the Lord. So this ta- again, this feast is called Sukkot, Sukkot, which is the plural of Sukkah, which, as I've already explained to you, is a shelter, a tent, a booth, a tabernacle. And as you see, they were to build these from different types of branches, signifying the blessings and the bounty of the Lord that he had provided in all of nature around us. There are two things that I want to focus on uh, in uh, what we just read here. The first of them I'm calling progression, progression, and the second one, presence, presence, progression and presence. These are two aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles that have a direct 
relationship to our lives today. We're not supposed to be standing still. The Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of progression, a feast of progress, a feast of pilgrimage. It was a yearly time when everyone was supposed to get out of their own homes and go to the house of the Lord, go to the meeting place that the Lord has designated. They have a famous saying in Russian based on this old film that the meeting place cannot be changed. doesn't mean anything if you've never seen that film, but the meeting place of God cannot be changed. He has designated a place of meeting. It's not Independence, Missouri. I don't know if you know that some people think Jesus is coming back to Independence, Missouri. It's a nice town. It's where Kevin McMullen lives, but it's not where Jesus is coming back. There's a designated meeting place at the house of the Lord at Mount Zion in, in Jerusalem. And we read about this in the scripture, and he is coming back to that place, and that place cannot be changed. He is not going to meet us where we are at, as we like to say, which has some value to say that, that God will meet you where you are in life, and you don't have to clean yourself up to come to God, just come the way you are. That all has, has a place in, in uh, uh, you know, some value in, in sharing the love of God with people and the mercy of God with people, but if we give them the impression that he's going to let them stay the way they are, then we're completely wrong, because that's not what holiness is about. We come to him the way we are. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't change our own lives. We can't fix our own problems, but we come to him expecting that he will fix us, that he will change us by his Holy Spirit, that he will make us holy. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of holiness. We'll see this next week where everything, even the pots and pans in the house of the Lord will be called holy unto him. Everything will be holy unto him. So it's a time of pilgrimage a time of movement from the place where we're stuck to the place where God is, where the Lord is, to the place that he has established for us to meet him. It's not comfortable for us. It's not easy for us. It's a time of great celebration, but if you've ever been camping for an extended period of time, you know how much work it is to go camping. Because once you're out there camping, if you weren't prepared, too late. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Drive 200 miles back to get that pot you left at home? No, you're just going to have to make do without that pot. The whole camping experience for us today, and it would have been like that for them every single year, required a lot of preparation. No matter where they lived, they had to come to Jerusalem. Now, originally, it wasn't Jerusalem. It was the place wherever the tabernacle was. Uh, but by the time of the New Testament, of course, it was Jerusalem where the temple was built. Wherever they lived, they had to come to Jerusalem, and they had to prepare. You know, think of all the work that goes into getting your RV ready, or if you're a tent camper, to getting all the stuff together, everything you have to do, and they had to go and they had to get there. And look at the time that it had to happen. It had to happen on the 15th day of the seventh month. It says when you have gathered in your crops. But what it literally says, it's just kind of a, a, a tiny thing, but literally it says while you are gathering in your crops. If you didn't get done by the 15th, tough luck. You still have to be there. Are all your olives and grapes going to be ruined because you didn't pick them in time? Olives, probably not. Grapes, probably yes. Whatever you didn't get done in time, it doesn't matter. 
When that day comes, that day has come. And you better be prepared because God's not going to adjust the time to meet our time schedule, is he? So even the time that God picked, if you, if you really think about it, it was very inconvenient for them. You know, at least our Thanksgiving is a ways away from when the harvest uh, ends. I'm sure they thought, well, let's put it more to the end of November so the farmer gets a chance just to rest for a couple of days before they have to make this big Thanksgiving meal and have all these people come. But this was not like that. I mean, they, this, this was right in the middle of the harvest time. And if they could get done in time, then that was great. But if they could not, then they had to be there anyway. And then can you imagine how much work it is as a family uh, to harvest olives and grapes if you don't have any modern machinery at all? And it's a lot of work today. You know, we were just in Napa Valley not that long ago, and you can see people hand-clipping grapes all over the place. I mean, it's still a lot of work. It's a very tender fruit. We've been to Greece and seen olive trees there, and they're hand-picking olives all over Greece. I'm sure there's some kind of machine that does it out there in California or something, but it's still an amazing amount of work. And these people would have been exhausted. But God says, no, you cannot stop where you are. You need to progress to meet me. Okay, that's the first thing, progression. The second thing is presence. What are you progressing toward? You have to be there in God's presence. You have to be ready in God's presence and ready for action. We're going to see that this um, uh, whole festival is fulfilled with the establishment of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. And his kingdom upon the, the earth, his 1,000-year reign that we've just been talking about on Tuesday evenings in the book of going through the book of Revelation, but the coming of his kingdom to this earth and the establishment of his kingdom is referred to as him tabernacling amongst us or living amongst us and us being in his presence. And the Feast of Tabernacles, the first seven days, is symbolic of that 1,000-year reign of Christ. The eighth day is of something different that we'll get to next week. But the first seven days is symbolic of that time of his ruling and reigning on this earth. And all of that time is referred to as the rest of God. You know, God's definition of rest is not our definition of rest. Rest is a ceasing from our labors, but in joining his labors. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he said, take my yoke upon you. For my, and if you don't know what a yoke is, you know, then you've got this picture, and I don't think every adult here does, but if you don't, just in case, you've got a picture of two oxen, and they've got that big yoke on their necks, and they're pulling a single uh, cart together. So he says, I'm doing a work, and you join in with me and be yoked together with me, and we'll do this work together, because my burden is easy. My load is easy, and my burden is light. But what he did not say is, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'm going to let you take a nap. You know, you're going to enter into my rest, which means you're going to join me in my work. So we're going to see that the coming of the kingdom of God is a time of great action, though it is a time of great rest. It's a time of the action that God has called us to, that we would rule and we would reign together with him. I believe that... Uh, to be very honest with you, that we are not 
living our lives to the fullest today in preparation for what God has for us when Jesus comes back. I don't really think we're getting ready for it the way we should be getting ready for it. You know, somebody can graduate from high school and get a diploma just because the teachers wanted to get rid of them or felt sorry for them. <laughs> or because the, the, the program, you know, the curriculum was just so easy that anybody could pass it. You didn't have to learn a lot of things that you're going to need later in life. But, you know, they're not going to become an engineer or an architect if they didn't study some math well enough that they can succeed in, in a higher education, right? You need to be preparing. If you have a dream of something you want for your life, then you need to prepare yourself with the skills and the knowledge that are necessary to fulfill that dream. You know, and that doesn't just apply to a higher education. And it applies to anything. If you want to be a welder, if you want to be a farmer, whatever it is you want to be in life. So we're going to see today exactly what it is that we're going to be doing with Jesus during this 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. And then I want us to question ourselves. Are we preparing ourselves for that today? What's most important to us today? Are we ready for the action that God is calling us to? So he says to them, you're going to have to come and you're going to have to rest and do no uh, laborious work. Do nothing difficult for these days. I command you just to have a party, just to rest and focus on what's coming in the future. He says that this is a remembrance for each generation of the Exodus out of Egypt when they progress toward the land of promise. There at the end, he says, I, I, I give you this so that you'll remember that uh, your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in tabernacles when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. So do you remember how they came out of the land of Egypt? When they came out of the land of, of Egypt, they had great loads of, of, of riches with them, actually, because God spoiled the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were like, just take all this gold and silver and just get out of here. And they went out of the land of Egypt, and as they went out of the land of Egypt, they crossed over the, the Red Sea, right? And they go into the wilderness, and they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But during that 40 years, it says that nobody got sick. So millions of Israelites, and they didn't even need a doctor for an entire generation. Nobody got sick during that 40 years. Also, during that 40 years, they never needed new shoes because the, the, their, their shoes didn't wear out. Their sandals never wore out. It was just miraculous. Also, during that 40 years, God kept giving them miraculous uh, water and fed them with manna from heaven, and quail would just come in by the command of God, and they'd just go out and, you know, you didn't have to hunt for the quail. You just went up there and took them and twisted their little necks off and had yourself a dinner, whatever they did. You know, it was easy. Everything was easy for them there. But what they didn't have is any permanent dwelling. They didn't have any house to live in. They lived in these tabernacles. And so God says, I want you to remember that. But here's what I want to focus on. When they lived in these tabernacles, they were constantly progressing. And they were being led by the presence of God, progress and presence. They were being led by the Spirit of God, by God's presence. Okay? And the presence of God worked like this. 
They knew where God was. He manifested his presence in a thing called a pillar of cloud by day. I don't know exactly what this looked like, but it looked like a pillar of cloud to them. That's why they called it that. And this pillar of cloud would move during the day. They could see it. And then it would stop. And at nighttime, God turned the lights on. There was a pillar of fire at night. Okay? Same God, same manifestation of his presence, but they were led by the presence of God. And so the Bible tells us in that story that sometimes they would be led to a certain place and the pillar of cloud would stop. Boom! And it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Maybe 10 o'clock. Maybe it's noon when the pillar of cloud stops. And what do you have to do when the pillar of cloud stops? Set up camp. And they would set up all of their tents. They were divided according to their tribes. It was a lot of work. It was a great logistical nightmare. Okay? There's millions of them. They had to be prepared at all times for battle. They had to be prepared for whatever was coming next. And they would also set up the tabernacle of the Lord with the Ark of the Covenant and, and, and all these things, right? So there's a lot of work. But the Bible tells us that they were really adept at setting this up quickly. So they would get it set up. And sometimes it might happen that they would set up in the morning and then at night, here comes the pillar of fire and it starts moving. And you know what they had to do? Break camp and follow the pillar of fire. It was not a comfortable existence for them. This isn't talking about how restful and peaceful it was. It was talking about a, a, you know, a, a really difficult camping trip they were on for 40 years. So sometimes in our lives, I, I think we feel like that. And I want you to know that you feel like that because that is how it actually is. And we're going to see this even more next week. But the bodies that we live in are called in the New Testament tabernacles. You know, they're, they're made out of sticks. We call them bones. And they've got this cloth or, 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 you know, leather stuff stretched over them that we call skin. And they are houses that we live in. Because the real, the real person that I am, the real person that you are, is a spirit man. You're a spirit person. We're spiritual people. And so we have contact with God by his Holy Spirit. And we are being led by his Holy Spirit. And sometimes our bodies are saying, no, 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 I don't want to go where God is leading you. And we have to take over our flesh and say, sorry, but we're moving now and you're going to go. But my knees hurt. You know, but I'm tired. I just got done working. How could you be calling me up to this holy assembly? I can't do that. What's that John up here talking about giving a tithe? I can't give up 10% of my money. I can't do any of that stuff you're telling me to, to do. But the secret of growing in the Christian life is learning to follow the leading of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The leading of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. The speaking of God's word to us. So they were supposed to remember this every year when they had it. And I can tell you, this would have been a real remembrance. At the end of the busiest season of the year, as tired as they were, they knew every year we go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, here's something interesting that'll come out next week when we get to the second half of this. But do you know that as soon as they got into the land of promise, while Joshua was, was still alive, very early on in their history, 
the children of Israel completely stopped celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It tells us that in Nehemiah. And for hundreds of years, they did not even celebrate this. All the time of David, all the time of Solomon, all these stories you read about in the Old Testament, they never celebrated it. And they weren't very good at keeping the Sabbath either. Because one of the reasons that God said you're going to go into captivity for 70 years is because for 490 years, you refused to keep the seventh year Sabbath. You did not let the land rest. Why? Because they're greedy. Because they don't trust God. They're just like us. I mean, what if God told you, all the farmers here, and I'm not saying he did because I'm not, you know, Let's just not get into whether the law applies to us or whatever, but this was God's command to, to the Jews as they lived there in that land. But still, I think every wise farmer knows you've got to let the land rest. But what if you knew that in the seventh year, you're not allowed to plant anything at all? At all. Would you do it? Well, over time, they decide we're not going to do that. Just like over time, we decide, well, Sunday's not really that big of a deal, and giving a tithe isn't really that big of a deal, and maybe it's not. You know, let no man be your judge according to the Sabbaths and the new moons, Paul says. Okay, well, I don't want to judge anything about anything, but the principle of God doesn't change. You need to rest in your life, and you need to give to God what he asks for us. And no person, a principle of the Scripture is nobody appears before God empty-handed. Nobody appears before God empty-handed. You know, you come to God with fear. You come to him with a loving respect. And you expect to receive from him because you know that he loves you. So they followed after the Holy Spirit and they were at rest. But the rest, the rest, let me just throw this in. The rest is actually, this, and just get this for your lives. The rest is the secret to success in action. The rest, when you know how to walk and live in the rest of God. There's a, a really interesting uh, line in uh, uh, the book. There's a lot of interesting quotes in that book. Uh, Moby Dick, if you ever read Moby Dick. I already asked this question on Tuesday, and hardly everybody ever did. You probably saw the, the, you know, the Gregory Peck movie, which is a great movie. If you didn't, then go watch that, and then read the book. Not very many great American novels, but that's one of them. And in describing the harpoonist, uh, in, Herman Melville wrote the book, obviously, uh, said this, to ensure, you know what a harpoonist is, right? Throws a harpoon at the whale. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. And he's talking about how the harpoonist, if he's expected to row the boat or expected to do other things on board, when it's time to shoot the dart, to throw the dart, to sh throw the harpoon at the whale, he, he will not be ready. He won't be mentally ready. He won't be ready for the whole job that he's actually on board that ship for. And so he should be in rest and he should rise to the attack on the whale from out of a position of doing nothing from out of a position of rest. And it's so important for us to learn that in our lives, that sometimes because we do not rest in the Lord, all the time because we're not resting in the Lord, we are frustrated in our actions for the Lord because we're tired, because our minds aren't focused and our minds aren't ready on what God... If you don't have time when you're reading the Bible every day, just 
you know, I don't want to make you feel guilty. I don't care if you read the Bible every day or not if you don't want to. But just try it. Try finding five minutes at least to sit by yourself without headphones on, without any noise, and just read the scripture. Just talk to the Lord. Start to pray. Begin to read the word of God. And you'll see that your whole day will go completely different because you're dwelling in the rest of God. So another thing I want to point out out of Leviticus chapter 23 is notice that it says in verse 42, you shall live in tabernacles for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in tabernacles. So this is the only one of the seven uh, feast days that uh, specifies that no foreigners can take part in this. If you're not a native born Israelite, you're not allowed to go. And this has nothing to do with discrimination. Uh, in fact, uh, if you'll read the, the law very carefully, you will see that God's design for a society was utterly non-discriminatory and that they were to treat the foreigners exactly the same way that they wanted to be treated themselves. And the whole basis of love your neighbor as yourself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus shows them that the Samaritan was the neighbor here. So there's nothing about that, but there's great spiritual significance to what's said here. All the native-born Israelites must do this. So to be native-born in the Hebrew, it's the word azarach, and it comes from the word zarah. And it comes from the word zarah, and zarah is the Hebrew word that describes the rising of the sun. It's one that arises, that shines forth as the sun. And so when it says native born, what it's talking about isn't just that you were born on the soil of Israel and you're an Israeli citizen. What it's talking about is that all the true Israelites, all those who are true Israelites, who are born again from the dead by faith, who have arisen up from the dead like the rising sun, who are, as we, that song we sing, dancing on the whatever it is, raised wings of the rising sun or something, that those who are true Israelites, that they will come and do this. That's the test, how you'll know who the true Israelites are, that they are the ones who enter into the rest of the Lord. In John chapter 3, very familiar verses of scripture, verse 5, Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, Everything about the Feast of Tabernacles has to do with the water of God's word and the spirit of his presence. Unless one is born of water, this is the water. God's word is the water and of the spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the... He's saying the same thing. If you're not a native-born Israelite, you cannot enter into the kingdom of Christ. But he's not talking about native born according to the flesh, but according to the water and the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, or literally the spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus said the Spirit, where it says wind in Greek, it's one and the same word, the, the pneuma. The wind, the Spirit. He says that it blows. You feel the blowing of it. 
It goes wherever it wants. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. That's true to this day with all our weather forecasts and everything. You, know, you still don't know where it's coming from, and you don't really know where it's going. If we knew all that kind of stuff, people like my sister in Florida wouldn't uh, have things destroyed in their home and put out uh, by a hurricane. Tornadoes, all these things. We still don't know. It's the power of the Spirit. You know, and there's scientific explanations for everything, but the, 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 the picture that Jesus gives is still true to this day. But notice that he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So ask yourself this question today. Are you born of the Spirit of God? Have you been born again? And if you are born of the Spirit of God, then Jesus says, this is a description of your life. You don't know where you came from, and you don't know where you're going. You're just following along with the Holy Spirit. All your plans in life, they mean nothing if the Holy Spirit switches directions. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to do as he says? Today, God is mustering his army. One of the things about the Feast of Tabernacles that's rarely understood is that when people live in tents, it's symbolic of an army. Because an army lives in tents. An army lives on the go, right? Armies don't live in buildings made with bricks when they're fighting. They're living in tents, they're sleeping under the stars, and they're on the go. And they're prepared for action. They're prepared for action, and they know how to rest if they've got good commanding officers. That's the nature of an army. It's exactly what's described with the Feast of Tabernacles. They may sit for weeks on end in foxholes somewhere, seemingly doing nothing. And at the proper time, suddenly they have what we call a surge, right? They begin the action. If the action comes too early or it comes too late, all that's dependent upon the commanding officer. All that's dependent upon generals, upon people that make decisions. And it has nothing to do with what you think down there in your foxhole. You just do as you're told, right? You're just, I'm just a pawn on the chessboard. Okay, well, at least you're on the chessboard. It's better than being a checker that got lost in the trash somewhere, right? I don't know. But, you know, sometimes we feel like, well, I'm just a pawn on the chessboard. You know, I, you know, God, I, I, I don't want to do that, God. And God's like, and? You're going to do it, and I'm not going to change my mind because you're, just, you're a part of a bigger picture, and you can't see the big picture yet. But the Feast of Tabernacles reminds you that there is a big picture. Jesus is coming back, and he's organizing everything to be that way, and if you want to be there, you must be born again, Jesus said. You cannot enter the kingdom of God if you're just flesh. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And if you are born again by the Spirit of God, then you're a spiritual person. You're not a fleshly person. You're a spiritual person. You don't always know where you're going and you don't know where you came from. But you know you're on a journey. You know you're progressing with the presence of God. In Luke chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus said to Peter in the story, that you know well, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. 
put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. But that's not really the part of the verse I want to focus on. I want to focus on what Peter said. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and we caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Will you do as Jesus says? Now, a lot of people are saying today, you know, in, in Russia, a lot of people are saying today, when is this all going to end? And life will just go back to normal. Well, we probably got a pretty good sign up there. Okay? Because everybody in America is like, when is this all going to end? In November, finally, this is all going to be solved. We're going to vote all them out and everything's going to be solved in November. I guess it's got news for you. The Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that no, it's not. It won't all end. Normal won't come back, and I'm not sure what normal was before anymore. I don't even remember what, the, what everything was like before because all the stuff that's happened is so shocking and so amazing. Things that you thought never could happen, they're happening, and they're going on right now around us. But the normal that we have is a normal in Jesus where we abide in his rest and we follow the Spirit of God. People are tired today. I get really tired. We're worn out. And Jesus says, then keep coming to me. Keep getting in my yoke. Keep taking my burden up. But Jesus, I've worked all night and I haven't caught a single thing. Yeah, because you were working in the flesh. One of the things I love in the Gospels, because I like fishing. I love in the Gospels, one day I noticed this and I'd never seen it before. I checked it. Yeah, it's true that these are professional fishermen. But from the moment they meet Jesus, they never catch a single fish unless Jesus tells them what to do. It's really quite amazing. They're, they, keep, they keep having, oh, we didn't catch anything. You know, even after the resurrection, they're out there fishing, and they didn't catch a thing until Jesus is standing on the bank and says, put your nets down. In the oh, okay, that must be Jesus. Because we can't do anything without him. Jesus said, you can't do anything without me. So everything you're doing is nothing. You're going to work hard all night, and at the end of the day, you're going to catch nothing. And I don't care if you're Elon Musk. I don't care how much money you have. There is coming an end of the day when you're going to go into a grave. They're going to lay that tabernacle in a grave or burn it up with fire. And you'll end up having caught nothing because everything of the flesh will be left behind and will all be burned up. But those who are of the Spirit, that's different. It continues for all eternity. Tabernacles is a feast celebrating eternity. In Luke chapter 17, there's a parable in uh, verses 9 and 10. In this, in, it's kind of a parable. It's more like a, a metaphor. Jesus is asking this question. And, um, you know, he, he, he says to them, uh, which one of you, if you had a slave, and none of them had slaves, but he said, if you did have a slave, and uh, uh, you, you were the master, and your slaves had worked all day, and they came in from the field, would you make dinner for them and serve them? And they're like, no, masters don't do that. No, of course not. You, you'd tell them to make dinner for you, no matter how tired they were, right? Because they're your slaves. That's what their job is, is to do that. And so they're going to make dinner for you. And I know we don't have slavery. Thank God we don't have slavery. We have forms of, many forms of slavery that people don't always think about, trafficking of, of humans in, in many different areas. But everyone understands the, the correlation anyway from a, a boss and a job that you have. You know, everybody's had a job like that or you've got a job like that right now. 
You know, nobody's going to say thank you to you because you did your job. You just, that was your job to do. You just do it. So Jesus said that the master does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? No. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's what we should be saying today. Are we doing that which ought to be done. Things may indeed, and they will if the Bible is correct, and it is, things may indeed continue to get worse before they ever get any better. But this is a season of hope. The Feast of Tabernacles tells us a day is coming when things indeed will be better. The Feast of Tabernacles is a call to exchange the comfort and the shelter of our own homes and join Christ on the field of battle and live in tents with Jesus Christ as Abraham lived in tents and take our kids and grandkids with us because Abraham lived in tents with Isaac and with Jacob, it says. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God and he was declaring and the book of Hebrews says that everyone who lives this way is declaring on this earth that I have no home. My home is in heaven. I am progressing somewhere. I'm on the way. I'm on the move. Do you know that Jesus is on the move today? And he's always on the move. He's moving. I, I love these stories in the, in the gospel when Jesus is coming up to the last, it's in the last year of his ministry, and he's moving toward an appointment that he has with his father. And the appointment is that he is a sacrificial lamb. And he, sacrificial lamb. And he knows that on this Passover day that I will be sacrificed for the sin of the world. And he's moving toward that. And he says to the people that say, we want to follow you. He says to them, the foxes, they have dens to live in. They have holes to live in. The birds of the air, they have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus never had a pillow to lay his head on. I'm sure he had a perfectly fine bed uh, there with Mary and Joseph when he was growing up. I mean, his dad was a carpenter. I'm sure that everything was great there at home, you know, and doesn't mean that he didn't have a place to stay. He was always staying with people in their homes, and there's some evidence in the New Testament that perhaps he had his own home. We don't know. There's not, you know, that's not told to us because that's not the focus of what we need to see here. But what it does mean is that on his mission for God, Whatever home he had, it wasn't permanent. And he was on the move. He didn't even have a nest. He didn't even have a, a, a hidden little fox den somewhere that nobody could find where he could retreat. And every time he would try to retreat, if you'll remember, he'd go to pray all night. People would just chase him down, follow him, and keep bugging him all the time because he's always on the move. So he says to them, no, you've got to come and follow me now. And they come up with their excuses, right? And the best one of all is the one where the guy says, well, let me go bury my father. And I don't really understand if the dad was already dead or getting ready. There's different explanations of that. But I'm going to go with the radical one. His dad actually had already died. He said, I've got a funeral to attend. And it's my own father. And I need to receive the inheritance and all that. You understand, don't you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no. Let the dead bury their dead. What do you need that inheritance for anyway if you don't have me? You come and follow me. Because if you go bury your dead father and then you come back here to meet me, I'm going to be gone. It'll be too late. 
Passover will have already passed over. You need to follow me now. You know, we cannot, as we grow in Christ, as we move forward in these days that we live in, I really believe we do not have the luxury to say no to Jesus. I really believe that we do not have the luxury to say, wait a minute, Jesus, give me a little time. I'm not prepared for that. If you're not prepared, get prepared. Get prepared today. Because when he calls, we have to go. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11, speaking about this, uh, about the coming of Christ, it says, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth or the fallen tabernacle of David. It's the Hebrew word sukkah. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains, which is symbolic of nations, will drip sweet wine and all the hills, the cities, will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given to them. Notice that he says, the plowman will overtake the reaper. So the plowman, he comes when? He comes in the springtime, right? And the reaper comes after the plow. Am I correct? I'm not a farmer, but as far as I understand, you plow the ground first, then you plant the seed, and then you reap it later, right? He says that the plowman, uh, uh, when he says the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, that comes in the fall. Him who sows seed, that comes in the spring. And what he's saying is the harvest will be so plentiful that you'll, you won't hardly get it all collected before you're already planting the seed for the next year. And you're going to be on each other's tails as you go around the farm all year round because it's going to be, you know, all year round, 24-7, you're going to be working and you're going to be bringing in this harvest. So what, it's, what it is, is it's talking about the, 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 the provision of God and the blessings of God that are coming on this earth. When Jesus comes back, he says, in that day, and it will be, I will raise up the, the fallen tabernacle of David. So the fallen tabernacle of David. Then over in Acts chapter 15... Acts 15, uh, begin with verse 15, this same verse is, is quoted by James at the council in Jerusalem. We went over that when we were going through the book of Acts. And they're trying to decide if it's okay for Gentiles to become Christians. Because a lot of the Jews were saying, no, they can't become Christians. They have to be circumcised first. They have to keep all the law of Moses first. And this same verse is quoted by James to confirm that the preaching of the gospel in all nations today is a preaching of the coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. To confirm that we should be out busy doing the work of our master. So see, there's only one work today that has any value for eternity. And everything we do, whether you know, whatever we're doing with our jobs, whatever we're doing with our families, it should all be about preparing the nations for the coming of the king. That's what an evangelist does. That's what the word gospel uh, means, literally. 
in, in the Greek. And everybody that read the New Testament back then understood that. Today we think of preaching the gospel or being an evangelist as getting people to come forward and say a sinner's prayer and you know, mark down how many people got saved today. But that's not what it meant then. What it meant then, it was, a, it was very much a military term. It is very much a military term. So the evangelist, the one who preached the gospel in, in the world, the word evangelist, was the guy that went before a conquering king. And say he already conquered Reno, but you didn't know about it yet because you didn't have internet or TV or anything, right? Then this guy shows up in town and they're blowing trumpets, doo, 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 and he's got the royal you know, garb on, so you know he's really somebody official. And he comes in and officially declares, you know, my king has just conquered Reno and he's on the door, you know, of, uh, he's almost in the Mason Valley and he's going to take all of Yarrington. So bow down before my king now and you shall be saved. If not, you shall be wiped out and destroyed when he arrives. That's what the evangelist does. The evangelist is preaching the coming of a military king. The preaching of the coming of the Lord of hosts. Are we prepared for his coming? In Micah chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading a lot of verses today, I know, but we're almost done actually. The mountain or the kingdom of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. I have news for you. The government of the United States is going to fall. Sorry. The government of every nation on this earth is going to crumble to dust when his kingdom comes. Daniel said, I saw the nations of the earth. It was like this great statue with the golden head of Babylon on the top. But when I looked at the toes, they were like clay and iron mixed together. It just didn't work. Somebody was taking steel and Play-Doh and trying to keep the thing up. Well, it doesn't matter how beautiful your golden head is, the base of this statue is crumbling. And he said that I saw a rock coming out of heaven that was not cut out by human hands. It's the kingdom of the Messiah. And when the kingdom of the Messiah came, it was like a rocket coming in and bam, it smashed into the legs of, that, of all the nations of the earth and they all crumbled to dust and there arose the kingdom of God upon that place. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains of all the kingdoms, and the peoples will stream to it. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Is that not written in New York City on the United Nations building? That very verse is written there. That they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The thing they got wrong at the United Nations, though, is that this will never happen. Anybody remember a group called the Imperials? Come on, raise your hands if you used to be Imperials fans. Everybody loved them. Russ Taft and the Imperials. Man, I always hear that song in my, in my head. There will never be any peace until God is seated at the conference table. That this will never happen. 
Will it ever happen that in the United States we will stop training armies for war? It's never going to happen until Jesus comes back. As long as human governments exist, they will train for war. So, it's not going to happen now, but it will happen eventually. When he comes and he establishes his year of jubilee, his thousand-year reign upon this earth, there will be no war. There will only be harvest. And it says one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I mean this. It's like a dream of my heart. Each of them will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree with no one to make them afraid. No reason to lock your doors. No reason to have a gun. The ultimate gun buyback program, you won't even need them anymore. You won't need anything. There's nothing to make you afraid anymore. But that's not today, is it? But that's what we need to be preparing ourselves for. Because that's how we will live throughout the entire reign of Christ upon this earth. Go with me over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19 and verse 19. Revelation 19, 19. We begin there. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. How stupid is that? that the kingdoms of this earth would actually gather their armies together to make war against Jesus Christ and his armies coming back. But that's what's going to happen. He's not coming back with, you know, with a flower girl going ahead of him and sprinkling petals around. He's coming back as the Lord of hosts on, uh, in battle. And we're, we are these armies that he has. We're supposed to be coming back with him. Are we battle ready? You know, it's going to be too late to get ready when he comes. It's already too late. So he's given us lots of these parables. Well, here's a great one. There are ten virgins, and they're supposed to be ready when the bridegroom comes, right? And five of them got enough oil to make it all the way through the night, and five of them don't. Five of them just assumed he was coming back sooner than he, than, than, than he did. They just didn't have enough oil ready. Right? And so they all fall asleep. There's nothing special about there's nothing special about the five wise virgins except they were prepared. Get that. The only thing special about them is they were prepared. It doesn't say they were more beautiful. It didn't say their dresses were nicer. You know, and it doesn't say they stayed awake all night because they didn't. They all fell asleep. The only thing special about them is they were prepared. They had the oil of the Holy Spirit. They were ready. No matter how long this takes, I'm not giving up until Jesus comes back. I'm going to hold on. Hold on to the end until he comes. So when the call went forth, the bridegroom cometh, the five, they all woke up, and the five foolish virgins realized that their lamps had gone out. And they say to the wise, give us some of your oil. And the wise make a wise decision. They say, no way. Because if we give you our oil, we can't give you our oil. Then we won't have enough. It's already too late for sharing. It's already too late for generosity and kindness. You know, the bridegroom is here and you're not ready. And they said, well, we're going to go to the store and buy some. They're like, good luck with that. You know, and they're gone to the store and the bridegroom comes and they're locked out. They're locked out because they were not ready. Again, 
Does that mean you go to hell? Or what is, I don't even want to get into it because I don't want to know what the weeping and gnashing of teeth is. I don't want to be locked out. I want to be ready. I want to be able to sit under my own vine, under my own fig tree with no one to make me afraid. So it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's you and me, by the way. If you're born again, that's you and me, his army. And the beast was seized, <clears throat> and with him the false prophet, that's the Antichrist and the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire with burns with brimstone. I love that. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their, with their flesh. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a massive human army utterly destroyed at Armageddon. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones. I saw thrones. And they sat on them. Who sat on them? The army that comes with Jesus. They sat on them. You and I are going to be sitting on thrones when he comes back. Look at that. It says you're going to be sitting on a throne. You are royalty. You know, royalty, like that nutty family there in England, I kind of like them, you know, but, but royalty, they, they, you know, they don't go to the same schools everybody else goes to. Rich people's kids don't go to the same schools everybody else goes to. Famous, you know, movie stars, these kind of people, right? But royalty especially, they have to be trained in the etiquette of the house. They have to be ready, prepared to take over the throne. It's a different breed of people. Well, you are a different breed of people. You've been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. So lift up your head and begin to have a little respect for your father and let him train you and lead you and guide you by his Holy Spirit because he's getting you prepared to sit on a throne. So if it seems hard sometimes what he's putting you through, what he's leading you through, maybe it's because he knows the greatness that he has created you for and is preparing you for. You're being prepared to sit upon a throne, so start sitting on it now. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. So nobody said that you're going to go through life on a bed of roses. It's a persecution. But I saw the souls of these people. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They refused to bow down when the music played. They refused to take the mark of the beast upon their hand or on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life. They came to life. It's a resurrection from the dead, the great hope of all of our lives. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who was a part in the first resurrection. That's a word spoken to us today. It's a word of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a word telling you today everything that you think is so important in this life, it really is worthless 
compared to what is coming. The blessing of this life and the holiness of God is upon you if you're in the first resurrection. So prepare yourself for a life of eternity together with Jesus Christ and get busy about saving this world that we're in. Because we are evangelists. We have family. We have friends. We have people we work with. They need to see the gospel in us and not just hear that, oh, I go to Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship. They don't need to hear about what church you go to. They need to hear about Jesus and see his majesty and his royalty upon your lives. That they know that he is real and that he's really coming. So blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. A priest of God, a priest of Jesus Christ, who reigns with him, and judgment is given to you for a thousand years. So that's our great hope. It's who we are today. If we're ever going to be these people, and it says we will, right? I mean, if I'm ever going to sit on a throne and rule and reign with Christ, it means I'm already royalty. You can't just become royalty later. I'm already royalty, right? We are a royal priesthood. Just think about who you are in Christ, and who Christ is in you. So how should we then be living? In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 Toward the end of his teaching on his second coming, Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. So he says he will come. He will come in glory. All the angels will come with him. And he will sit on his glorious throne. But we read that we also sit on this glorious throne together with him. So tabernacles is a celebration of readiness. A season of hope means a season of readiness because the things we hope for we don't see yet. When we hope for something we don't see it yet. But we believe that it is coming. And we are progressing toward the thing that we hope for. Tabernacles is a time to renew our hope. A time to store our spirits, to prepare ourselves for the coming of our king, to go out to meet him on the field of battle, to live in tents together with him. After all the work we've done in the harvest, after everything that we've done, no matter how tired we are, he's still saying, join me, because there's still a work left to do, to enter into my rest. This is a time in America when we need to be ready. It's a time that's really difficult. I want to give you two verses to end with. Both of them talk about what we need to do to be ready. Matthew 24, 45, Jesus says, Who's then, who then, in chapter, 20 verse 40, chapter 24, verse 45, in the same teaching on his second coming, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
if you are faithful in the little things that God has given you, if you are faithful over the little things that he has given you, he says, I will put you over all of my possessions when I come. I mean, can, can you just even imagine that he would put you in charge of cleaning up Lyon County when he comes? You know, or the whole state of Nevada. Or maybe he'd say, you go to that place that used to be Washington, D.C. and take care of all of the, you know, the team of people from Urington. We're sending them over there to clean up the whole United States. It would be amazing that he'll put you over all his possessions. But what does he need you to do today? Just to be faithful to give food to his servants on time. So if you're a dad, be a spiritual dad for your kids. If you're a mom, be a spiritual mom for your kids. If you're married, love your spouse as you love yourself. If you go to church and you do because you're here, love your neighbor as yourself. Give to each other the food that God has given you. Take care of them. And let it be that when he comes, you're still doing that. You're still holding the line. You're still standing at your post. You haven't surrendered the bridge. You haven't surrendered the crossing over the river or whatever it is from all those war movies you've seen. You know, when it looks like everything's going to fail, but you held on and you held on because you believed that what you were told is true, that you have to hold this bridge until he comes. Let him find you doing that. And if you get beheaded for it, fine, you're still blessed because you're going to get raised up from the dead and you're going to be found faithful to Jesus Christ. But if that evil slave says it in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat up his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour which he does not know will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The other scripture is from 1 Corinthians 6. I'm just going to read a few verses in the beginning of that chapter. It's based on Daniel's prophecy, which is in Daniel 7. Daniel prophesies in three verses in Daniel 7 that when the Messiah comes, that the saints will be given possession of the kingdom. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul takes that prophetic truth and he applies it to the everyday life of the Corinthians. And he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to judge trivial things in this life? Do you know that you will judge the world? And if you will judge the world, then how should you be living your life today? And he says, Do you not know that we will judge angels. They, just think of yourself. Do you know that John Matero, you're going to judge angels someday? Oh, I'm not ready for that. Well, let's get ready. We're we are going to judge angels. That's what it says. And Paul challenges them and says, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? He said, I say this to your shame, that you're fighting and bickering with one another, that you can't even do the simplest thing, which Jesus just laid out for you. If you've got a problem, just go talk to somebody face to face and solve it. And if you can't solve it, then get some brother or sister to go with you. Pray together and solve it. 
And if you can't solve it, well, then come tell the pastor about it, and let's all pray together, and we'll solve it. And I've never in my entire ministry life more than maybe one or two incidences that I can't even hardly remember, there's probably one out there, ever seen that a problem couldn't get solved on somewhere in those three stages. And somebody had to be kicked out of church or something. Because if we're honest, we could solve it in the face-to-face one at the beginning. And Paul is saying, just grow up and start acting like you're going to judge angels someday because someday you're going to judge angels and someday you will sit with Jesus Christ and judge this world and the Feast of Tabernacles reminds you of this. So how much more are the matters of this life? He says, I say this to your shame. Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Nothing of the flesh inherits God's kingdom. Let's pray. We have a worship team come up. Father, I just want to thank you for this Feast of Tabernacles. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.